Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly here with Audie Cornish. Poppy is off today, and let's go ahead and get things started with five things to know for this Monday, July 3rd. Starting with police in Baltimore now saying at least two shooters are on the run right now in Baltimore after two people were killed and 28 others were injured in a mass shooting at a block party. Most of the injured are teenagers, some as young as 13. Ukrainian President Zelensky calls Putin weak and says his power is crumbling. That's in an exclusive interview from the front lines with Aaron Burnett. Hear what he says about the slow push to recapture territory occupied by Russia. New details this morning about Donald Trump's effort to stay in office after he lost the 2020 election. The former president reportedly pressured the then Arizona governor to overturn election results, telling him to find fraud that would help him win the state. Trump and his allies tried the same tactics in Georgia, Michigan, and with other officials in Arizona. And scorching heat and severe storms have millions of Americans on alert this holiday Monday. More than 7,500 flights already been delayed, nearly 500 canceled so far today. And Twitter limits how many tweets users can read in a day, and the Twitterverse, not happy. So why did Elon Musk do it? CNN This Morning starts right now. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Audrey. Good morning to you. Two DC people decamped yeah, to New York. Yeah, they let us in. They let um, us in. No passports. I desperately want your thoughts on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I and, have some. And the limits, and I know you have some. We're going to get that to that in a little bit. But first, and most importantly, new overnight, Ukraine claims it's gaining ground in its counteroffensive. A top defense official says Ukrainian forces are advancing near the captured city of Bakhmut and have retaken around 12 square miles over the past week. This is new video of a Russian tank you can see here being destroyed near that city. Russia unleashed another wave of drones on Ukraine overnight after striking Kyiv for the first time in nearly two weeks over the weekend. In an exclusive sit-down interview with CNN's Aaron Burnett, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says last weekend's mercenary rebellion inside Russia shows Vladimir Putin is weak and his grip on power is crumbling. Mr. President, you know, you recently said that you have dealt, and I'll, I'll quote you the way, the way it quoted, with different Putins. It's a completely different set of traits in different periods. Now, of course, he's faced a, a rebellion, an attempted coup from Evgeny Prigozhin. Have you seen any changes in, in how you think he's acting, in, in his behavior since the attempted coup? Yes, we see the reaction after certain Wagner steps. We see Putin's reaction. It's weak. Firstly, we see he doesn't control everything. Wagner's moving deep into Russia and taking certain regions shows how easy it is to do. Putin doesn't control the situation in the regions. He doesn't control the security situation. All of us understand that his whole army is in Ukraine. Almost entire army is there. That's why it's so easy for the Wagner troops to march through Russia. Who could have stopped him? We understand that Putin doesn't control the regional policy, and he doesn't control all those people in the regions. So all that vertical of power he used to have just got crumbling down. Do you believe he's fully in charge of the military right now when it comes to your front line and this counteroffensive? Do you believe Putin is fully in charge of the Russian military? 
Я вважаю, що він повністю не контролює. I don't think he fully controls all the processes. He gives orders to the commanders. It's understood. They are scared to lose their jobs, but he doesn't understand and doesn't control the middle layer of the Russian military, nor the lower rank officers and soldiers. Also new overnight, the Kremlin claims it foiled a car bomb assassination plot against the Russian-backed leader of Crimea. Now, in his interview with Aaron Burnett, Zelensky said the war in Ukraine won't be over until Crimea is back under Ukrainian control. We cannot imagine Ukraine without Crimea. And while Crimea is under the Russian occupation, it means only one thing. War is not over yet. To be clear, in victory, in peace, is there any scenario where Crimea is not part of Ukraine? It will not be victory then. I know the U.S. CIA chief Bill Burns has come and visited you regularly. He was here recently. What did you tell him about your plans to take back territory in the counteroffensive? To be honest with you, I was surprised to see the information in some media, both in the U.S. and Ukrainian and European media. My communication with the CIA chief should always be behind the scenes, and the media attention because we discuss important things, what Ukraine needs and how Ukraine is prepared to act. We don't have any secrets from CIA because we have good relations and our intelligence services talk with each other. I don't know what were other contacts. I don't really remember which media I read it in. The situation is pretty straightforward. We have good relations with the CIA chief and we are talking. I told him about all the important things related to the battlefield which we need. And you can watch Aaron's full interview with Ukrainian President Zelensky Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Now, you heard President Zelensky talking about his secret face-to-face -face meeting with the head of the CIA. So let's bring in CNN national security reporter Natasha Bertrand. And Natasha, uh, this was a fascinating development. It wasn't public when it happened. Uh, I think our Jim Shudo and you have been reporting on it. Do we have any idea what they talked about during the sit-down? Yeah, so we have some sense from a U.S. official basically reaffirming that Bill Burns did make this trip to Kyiv, as he has many times before, including as recently that we know of uh, in, in January. And according to this U.S. official, Bill Burns uh, reiterated the U.S.'s commitment to intelligence sharing with Zelensky. Now, according to Zelensky himself, he did say that he shared information about the battlefield and about Ukraine's counteroffensive with Burns, as well as what Ukraine actually needs in order to be successful in that counteroffensive. But look, Burns has been somewhat of an emissary throughout this entire war for the Biden administration, not only to Ukraine, but also to Russia. And he has been taking full advantage uh, of the trust that the president uh, has placed in him and his deep knowledge, of course, of Russia, of Ukraine, uh, to uh, play a really important role here, not only in serving as kind of a, a diplomatic, of course, emissary between the countries, but also, of course, sharing U.S. intelligence with the Ukrainians about what they know about the Russian plans on the battlefield, for example. And just this weekend, uh, Bill Burns, he was speaking in England, and he said that this is actually a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the CIA in terms of recruitment, just because of the level of disaffectment that they have seen uh, by the Russians with Putin's war in Ukraine and with his leadership writ large. Here's what he said. Disaffection with the war will continue to gnaw away at the Russian leadership. That disaffection creates a once-in-a-generation opportunity for us at CIA. We're very much open for business. 
So the U.S. has been sharing quite a bit of intelligence with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians don't always share as much intel with the U.S. Uh, because, of course, of that big leak that we saw of classified Pentagon documents, they have been a little bit more wary to share intel with the U.S. Uh, but the U.S. still trying to do what it can, of course, to give Ukraine the information it needs to be successful, Phil. Now, there's another Biden administration official who's traveling, right? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's going to China. Um, what's the goal of this trip? Yeah, so the Biden administration has been trying to kind of mend ties with the Chinese because they recognize, of course, that these are the two biggest economies in the world. And this is something that Janet Yellen uh, has said repeatedly, that while, of course, there are trade and, and other practices by the Chinese that the U.S. is concerned about, that there is still a need to keep those lines of communication open. And, of course, we saw the Secretary of State uh, travel to China in recent months. This is just a continuation of that attempt to really kind of rebuild communications with the Chinese. Importantly, though, uh, military communications are still closed. Those military channels that are so important for de-conflicting uh, potentially catastrophic situations in, in the in, near China and elsewhere around the world, those uh, remain closed. And so the Pentagon has been trying to reopen those channels, but starting really with the Secretary of State, the Treasury Secretary, they're trying to get to a place here where at least there can be a dialogue between the two countries, guys. Yeah, it's an important dialogue at that. Natasha Bertrand, great reporting. Thanks so much. Right now, police in Baltimore are searching for at least two shooters who they say opened fire on a block party, killing two people and hurting 28. Now, most of the injured are teenagers, including two 13-year-olds. New this morning, you can see people sprinting away from the gunfire. This was early yesterday morning. This is surveillance video obtained by our affiliate WJZ. Investigators say they don't know if the shooters were targeting anybody specific or if this is a random bout of violence, but they're still on the run this hour as we learn the names of the victims who died. 20-year-old Kylas Fagbemi and 18-year-old Aliyah Gonzalez. CNN national correspondent Gloria Pesmino is live in Baltimore this morning. Gloria, as we mentioned, so many of these victims were between the ages of 13 and 19. What have you learned about the shooting? Yeah, uh, Audie, young people caught in the crossfire. Several teenagers had gathered here for a celebration known as Brooklyn Day. And it was supposed to be a celebration for this community and the families that live here. But it ended in tragedy. Now, it was shortly after midnight when police say that shots rang out, sending hundreds of people that had gathered here running for cover. I spoke to some of those people here yesterday. They told me it was absolute chaos and panic as they ran away from the gunfire running for their lives. Now, an 18-year-old woman and a 20-year-old man were killed and dozens more were injured. 28 people injured by gunfire, many of them teenagers as young as 13 years old. Now, Audie Mayor Brandon Scott was here last uh, night yesterday, and he was uh, pleading with this community, asking them to come forward and share any information that they might have that can uh, help find the people that were behind Saturday night of violence. He was also critical of gun violence, saying that this is not just a Baltimore problem, that gun violence is affecting every part of the country. We are asking again that anyone that knows anything about this mass shooting, and that's what I wanted to call it, it's a mass shooting. We want this shooting to be treated just as it happened in rural America. We want everyone to come forward and say, treat this if it was your daughter, your son, your brother, your cousin that was out here uh, shot at this event. 
Now, Adi, another uh, important detail that we learned from police yesterday, they say they are looking for multiple individuals uh, behind uh, Saturday nights of violence. They have not identified or named the people they're looking for just yet, but we do know uh, they are looking for several people. They say they believe at least two uh, were behind uh, Saturday night's uh, shooting. Adi? Gloria Pesmino, thank you for your reporting. And in our next hour, Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott will join us live. Well, also this morning, Israeli Defense Forces launching a deadly raid inside the West Bank as tensions there continue to escalate. And Mike Pence is responding to a CNN report that Donald Trump had him call the governor of Arizona to try and pressure him into overturning the 2020 election results. Errol Lewis and Shelby Telcott will join us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I did check in uh, with uh, not only Governor Ducey, but other governors in states that were going through the legal process of reviewing their election results, but uh, there was no pressure involved. Margaret, I was, I was calling to get an update. I passed along that information uh, to the president, and uh, it was no more, no less than that. Well, that was former Vice President Mike Pence yesterday saying he did, in fact, call then Arizona Governor Doug Ducey after the 2020 election, but importantly, not to pressure him into finding fraud on former President Trump's behalf. This comes after CNN reporting that Trump himself pushed Ducey to look for fraud that would help him overturn the 2020 election results. And Pence held multiple calls with the Arizona governor about the election results around the same time. CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes is live in Washington this morning. Kristen, what do we know about what those conversations actually entailed? Well, let's start with the Trump conversation, because we knew that Trump and Ducey spoke. Both both leaders confirmed that, but we didn't know exactly what was said. And we are learning that Ducey behind closed doors has said that Trump was trying to pressure him to find some sort of fraud to overturn the election results in the state of Arizona. As we know, uh, he narrowly lost that state by about 11,000 votes. Now, when it comes to the Pence conversations, we know now that Pence held multiple calls with Ducey at the time, but we are told by sources that it was not too pressure him. It was to ask him if he had seen any actual indication of voter fraud, and if he had, to report it appropriately. Now, interestingly here, Phil, uh, we know that in Georgia, this call was recorded. We now know that in Arizona, there is no recording of this call. We also know that the special counsel, Jack Smith, who was investigating uh, Trump's actions after the 2020 election, as well as the January 6th insurrection, has not reached out to the former governor, Doug Ducey, about this interaction. So interesting here, of course, we know that Trump was putting an enormous amount of pressure on people across the country to try and find fraud to overturn the 2020 election. As we have reported multiple times, there is no indication that there was massive fraud anywhere in the country. That's exactly right. Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. So we actually have video of one of the calls the then president made to Governor Ducey. It was November 2020. Ducey was certifying the election results when Trump appeared to call him. I want you to listen carefully to the ringtone. It's faint. You can make it out. Extremely subtle hail to the chief ringtone playing on Ducey's phone. Governor Ducey did not take that call, but later said he spoke with Trump. And he did not just describe the specifics of the conversation. 
So to tease us out more, we're going to bring in CNN political commentator and host of the You Decide podcast, Errol Lewis, and semaphore political reporter Shelby Talcott. Welcome to you both. Did you know Errol actually requires everyone to have <laughs> Hail to the Chief as his ringtone <laughs> on his phone? Like it's, uh, it's contractual for him. Uh, you know, the thing that's interesting about this moment is there's obviously the ongoing reporting in Georgia where there is an investigation. Can you start by giving us a sense of how similar this sounds to what uh, the investigators have been looking at there? I mean, obviously the big difference is there's no recording of the call, but it sounds pretty similar to me right off the bat. And we already know that Trump has pressured other officials, so it doesn't necessarily come to as a surprise to me that he would have also done this to Ducey. Yeah, but Ducey has said that Jack Smith hasn't reached out to him yet. Is that correct? What do you know? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think that's notable. And I remember in the, in the reporting that he told a donor that it was notable at all, that he was, so, that he was surprised that he hadn't been um, spoken to yet. I do think that the, this investigation is ramping up quickly. And so if he hasn't been spoken to yet, he likely will be soon, particularly now that this is all public. I would, uh, I would think that this kind of pressures Smith even more into speaking with him. Absolutely, now that it's out. I mean, you know, the Brad Raffensperger, you know, sort of uh, feast of evidence is something you've got to track down. Every single person who made or heard or understood or interpreted that call, it doesn't sound like this is even remotely comparable. So it may not be as high of a priority, but certainly if Jack Smith is as thorough as his reputation suggests, sooner or later they will get down. It's just this looks like it's it's not necessarily low-hanging fruit if you don't have uh, an actual recording and if you don't have somebody in the form of Doug Ducey who's willing to maybe testify under oath as to exactly what he was told. That might, in fact, end up remaining confidential. Shelby, you keyed on the the, el- the first element that I picked up on the story, which was less that a call happened. Again, this happened repeatedly over the course of the, the weeks after, but mostly that Ducey had talked to a donor, according to The Washington Post, about ha- he hadn't been called yet. But the other thing that sticks out to me is what Trump's team responded in the Washington Post story. And I want to read it. It says, a spokesman for Trump declined to respond to questions about the call with Ducey, but instead falsely declared in a statement that, quote, the 2020 presidential election was rigged and stolen. The spokesman said Trump should be credited for, quote, doing the right thing, working to make sure that all the fraud was investigated and dealt with. And the reason why that sticks out to me is it's like, is everyone just numb at this point? Like, everything about that statement is a lie. Like an unequivocal, unambiguous lie based on however many run through the dozens of investigations and court cases, everything like that. And they're just tossing that out there in the middle of a campaign um, where he is the front runner by 30 plus points. When you talk, you're on the trail. When you talk to Republican voters, when you talk to primary voters, like, does that, do they care at all? It's interesting because I do think a lot of Republican voters believe the 2020 election was stolen. And that's why when you hear Trump still speak about it, right, it's 2023, he's still talking about it on the campaign trail. It resonates in a way. And even those who don't necessarily think, believe Trump's false claims, still believe that there was enough voter fraud that it should be a concern. So it is kind of front and center in a lot of these voters' minds, even the ones who don't necessarily want to vote for Trump. Like yeah, even, the, even the like diehard table fans. stakes, right? Just to be in the race at this mm-hmm. point is to say at least there was some kind of fraud to be concerned about. Um, I want to bring us to Will Hurd, who is of Texas, I think is looking at his pre- presidential run. Um, and he talked about what it's like right now in the party. Uh, I'm not going to support uh, Donald Trump. I recognize the impact that it has on, on, on you know, my ability to get access mm-hmm. to the debate stage. 
but I, I can't lie. So he's talking about the fact that to even get on the debate stage, you have to say that you will support whoever the nominee is. Errol, can you talk a little bit about what that means in this particular race, which is defined by being sort of for or against Trump? Right, right. I mean, Donald Trump has really sort of set the table in a way that will uh, obviously favor him. If the cost of, if the table stakes, as you put it, of, of being in the debate or having even a remote shot at the nomination is that you have to support Trump and his version of what happened in 2020, well, he's going to hold on to his lead, to say the least, and will probably end up being the nominee. Will Hurt doesn't want to play that game, and good for him for, for saying that, you know, for recognizing what so many of the other candidates don't seem to recognize, which is that if you play that game on those terms, you cannot win. You're not going to take Donald Trump's uh, base away from him. If he defines the race as whether or not you support me, uh, you're not going to win that race either. But if it's the only way to get to the debate stage, what does that mean? I mean, it seems like the party is structuring things as such that it would make it hard for someone to operate outside of it. He's acting, uh, Donald Trump is uh, like a de facto incumbent. You know, look, on, on the Democratic side, if you look at what President Biden has done, you know, th the way they rearranged the campaign, uh, the, the, the uh, primary schedule, uh, the, the fact that there are really no opportunities for any significant opposition to get onto a debate stage with him, uh, Donald Trump is trying to do his version of that. Now, the fact that there are so many candidates suggests that people think that either he's going to go away or the, the base is going to suddenly desert him. I don't know if, if they're being realistic about that, but um, that's why he's got a 30-point lead at this point. I Shelby. think this is going to be the world's least signed pledge also. Oh, you think people can get away without signing it? I mean, I, I guess I wonder if nobody signs it, what are, are they not going to have debates? Well, that's, I mean, that's the funny part, too, is like also, it, and I think it might have been Chris Christie who was like, yeah, I guess I'll sign it, but like, I don't mean it. Right? It's not binding. Exactly. I don't like, know how you cares it, if you want to get on the debate stage. I think my, and I feel like I ask you this every time you're here, and I apologize for the repetition, but I actually think it's important um, because I know you're plugged in. Like, what are the odds Trump's actually on a debate stage? I don't think they're very high. And his, his, his argument and his team's argument is essentially, why would I give everyone else the time, right? I'm ahead by so much. Um, and it, it is, in a sense, a legitimate argument. No, it's a very because savvy Because he is so far ahead, why would, right. he, yeah. why would he bother? I don't see him doing it. I see him potentially actually, um, and there's been some rumors about this, hosting his own event. Okay. Shelby Talcott and Errol Lewis, thanks so much for being with us. All right, well, tensions seem to be calming at least somewhat in France after, police, after the police killing of a teen sparked a fiery protest. We're going to take you there for updates live. Now, welcome back. Police in France detained at least 157 people overnight after a much calmer night of protests. Violent demonstrations, of course, erupted last week following the police shooting of a 17-year-old during a traffic stop. About 45,000 security forces are still deployed across the country. And French President Emmanuel Macron is meeting with top officials today to discuss the next steps. I want to go to CNN's Nick Robertson. He joins us live from just outside Paris. And Nick, I think the question is, I've watched throughout the course of the last couple of days, is does last night and kind of the easing of tensions, at least slightly, suggest that a turning point is coming? 
Yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, look at the metric of fires, which I think uh, over the past few days has been a good metric uh, of how big this whole protest is, how many people involved. 352 fires reported last night, 871 the night before, 2,500 the night before that, 3,900 almost the night before that. So this trajectory has been coming down. City halls, this is one of them, 99 of them have been attacked and vandalized. The interior minister today saying it's going to spend $22 million on replacing the CCTV cameras around the city halls. This city hall protesters attacked it, couldn't get in over the weekend, attacked the mayor's house. His wife was injured trying to escape with their two really young children. And the mayor's union in France has called for uh, protests, demonstrations outside mayor's offices. And this is a small gathering here today. More protests or more gatherings like this have been called for to show support for the mayor's. And that's really central to what the government's saying. They're saying, look, uh, we're going to keep up with this heavy police presence, which seems to be a big part of keeping control of the situation. And we're appealing and saying you're damaging your own communities. And it's interesting because just yesterday, now that young 17-year-old who was shot last week, killed by the police, his grandmother came out and made a very similar appeal. I blame the policeman who killed my grandson. I'm the grandmother. I blame the policeman who killed my grandson. That's all I want. The police, they are here, fortunately. They are here, and the people who are breaking things, I tell them, stop, stop. They use Nahel's death as a pretext. Now they must stop. So she's calling for it to stop. She's saying, look, your mothers are using the buses you're burning. Your mothers are using the town hill, the town halls that you're trying to attack. Uh, they use the services of the mayor. So, so stop. It does seem it's a downward trajectory from here. And uh, I think from what we've heard from people around here today, they, they really want to see the end of the violence. Nick, can I ask, uh, having watched this over the course of the last five or six days, there are very clear... Uh, if not perfect uh, correlation, kind of an analog to what we've seen in the United States at various points. Dynamics, elements, even what you're hearing from the grandmother is something we would often hear. Can you contextualize kind of this moment on this particular issue in, in France and, and why it got to this point and what happens next? Yeah, last big uh, sort of dem demonstrations, violence across the country that at the moment uh, officials are calling unprecedented was 2005. There is pent up frustrations in the poorer neighborhoods. Uh, and this is, you could call it one of those neighborhoods. But it's not as poor as some like where Nail lived, but where people feel disadvantaged, where ethnic minorities, people from Arabic backgrounds, North African backgrounds, feel racially profiled and targeted by the police. And to a degree, we've seen that on the streets of the Champs-Élysées, the young people who were being swept up by the police and frisked on the streets were typically people who appeared to be of North African or, or Arabic descent. Um, it is something that's felt wildly here. The government pushes back on that and says, no, um, that's not the issue here. It's all young people. Their parents should take better control. The president has promised to sort of look deeply into this issue over the coming months. It's being treated as a security situation right now. But as you say, the underlying issues are deep and come back to that feeling of being racially profiled, racially disadvantaged, the police taking a tougher hand with, uh, you know, with them. And, and, and that has been building up, and it came to a head over the past few days. All right, Nick Robertson, live for us in Paris. Thanks so much.
Now, there are new tensions in the Middle East this morning. Egypt joins Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in condemning the latest deadly round of Israeli airstrikes in the West Bank. At least seven people were killed. Nearly two dozen others were injured. An Israeli military spokesman claims the strikes are an effort to target terrorist infrastructure with routes to Iran. Now, the strikes are centered on an area of a refugee camp. The Israeli military calls that area the Hornet's Nest, where dozens of shooting attacks against Israel have originated. We're going to take you live to Jerusalem next hour. Well, coming up ahead, what's behind Elon Musk's move to limit the amount of tweets you can read on Twitter? Audi, you have all the answers, right? (laughs) Our senior media analyst, Sarah Fisher, will explain all of it coming up next. Slow your scroll, Elon Musk said over the weekend that Twitter will limit, (laughs) at least temporarily, the number of posts you can read. He claims it's an effort to address extreme levels of data scraping. So verified accounts limited to 10,000 posts per day, unverified accounts 1,000 per day. Now, this was revealed after thousands of users complained that they were unable or had trouble accessing the site. Many reported getting messages that they had exceeded their rate limit. So what is behind this latest turmoil for the company? CNN's senior media analyst, Sarah Fisher, joins us. She's also senior media reporter at Axios. And Sarah, what gives? What now with him? There's always something, Audie, right? It never is. is a dull day in Elon Musk land. You know, I think this is a response to the rise of a lot of big AI platforms that are starting to scrape big social media platforms for data to help train their algorithms. You saw Reddit a few weeks ago said that they would start cho- uh, charging developers for some of that backend access. They got a lot of pushback from their community. It seems like Elon Musk is trying to do something similar. But the difference, Audie, is that this is going to have a huge impact on the everyday users experience with Twitter. You saw some people tweeting frustration yesterday, ironically tweeting frustration about Twitter, that they weren't able to get severe weather updates, critical news and information because they were being limited to the number of posts that they were able to view. Now, Elon Musk has not said how long he's going to implement this temporary crackdown, but I do know that it's going to be frustrating for advertisers because they're reliant on heavy usage in order to fulfill their ad campaigns, make sure they have enough people watching and reading tweets in order to insert their ads between them. Theoretically reliant on them for business, but one quick fact check. What's this about maybe him not paying his bills? Can you talk about what's going on there? There have been so many reports, whether it's been some of its B2B vendors or its licensing or its uh, leases, if you will, that Twitter has struggled to pay its bills. And that's because Twitter's really struggling with profitability right now. Now, to be honest, Twitter's always struggled with profitability even before Elon Musk took over. But the difference is that they are not a publicly traded company. They do not need to be transparent about their finances, what money they're bringing in and what money they're spending. And so it seems like the company is just in this sort of chaotic spot where it's trying to stay afloat but it's not necessarily doing it in the most transparent way. We keep getting reports, not also just about not paying bills, but they're still in litigation with former employees about paying out severances, et cetera. So expect Twitter to continue to be in this sort of financial chaos until maybe they can turn the platform around. But I'm still skeptical, Audie. Even though they have you know, put in a new chief executive, this platform continues to be chaos as I cover it. All right, Sarah, stay with us. I want to bring Shelby and Errol back in. Um, you're so jealous that you didn't write the Slow Your Scroll, Ryan, aren't <laughs> you? Like, that's podcast-worthy tech yeah. copy right there. Errol, I, I think why I love listening to Sarah talk about this is because I'm fascinated by the business story, less less on the myopic, like, navel-gazing 
people being angry about their tweets not being available and all that type of stuff. But from a business perspective, they bring in Linda Yaccarino, a big time executive that's supposed to juice up their advertising. Uh, Elon Musk is Elon Musk. How does this end? Well, um, it's not going to be pretty. The, at this point, the estimate is that um, under Elon Musk, the company has lost two thirds of its value. He paid forty-four billion dollars for it. It's worth something like fifteen billion. And now. that's not good, right? Um, right, <laughs> right, right. Not good. The numbers supposed to go in the other direction. Um, the, the 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 fact that advertisers and uh, important users like the National Weather Service and others are saying like this this may not be for us. Um, the algorithm is it still sort of promotes and and favors you know kind of anger and division and outrage, making it a much less pleasant user experience for everybody who's left on it. Uh, and then this idea that you're going to get out of it by paying eight bucks, uh, which has just been roundly rejected. They've got very, very few subscribers, even among their daily users. So they're, they're, as, as a business, it's just, it just seems to be falling apart. Now, it's, it's got a lot of sort of a potential. It's got a lot of residual affection. It's got a lot of and users. it's a key I political it tool, right? We have 2024 coming up. I mean, do campaigns think they're going to still be using Twitter? Yeah, I think, well, I think the big thing is, if it was just this change, it would be a huge change. But given how much Elon Musk has already changed the platform, like I know personally, I feel like the platform is a little bit less reliable now in terms of me finding verified news that has been fact-checked and is legitimate. Um, and so I, I think in that sense, it's a little bit less of a priority for campaigns. I mean, Donald Trump is still not on the platform, for example. I, I do think pre-Elon Musk, he would have more of a reason to, to join it. Hey, Sarah, with the time we have left, I mean, from a business perspective, from a Linda Yaccarino perspective, do the, when you talk to both people inside the company but also analysts outside, is there a pathway that exists here to kind of get them out of this just constant state of tumult and seeming collapse, followed by resuscitation, followed by some new strategy that I can't figure out? <laughs> There is a pathway. One of the things that you're going to hear internally a lot is that Linda brings assurance to the talent inside. There's still some people who are great salespeople, who are great engineers that want just guidance and direction and some assurance that things aren't going to change that much. And they're hoping that Linda will bring some consistency. But from the outside world, the perspective of the advertisers and marketers, I just spent a good week with them at a big you know, advertising festival overseas. And the thing that you keep hearing is that Twitter is still the most relevant public square for political discourse. You have Meta, which is the parent company to Instagram and Facebook, that's trying to build out a rival. You have small budding rivals like Mastodon and Blue Sky. But at the end of the day, Twitter is still the biggest public score in the world. And so if Elon Musk can figure this out, there's definitely a product case to be made for it being relevant. I'm just not quite sure, quite frankly, if he's going to be able to do it and keep Linda Yaccarino at his side uh, and she doesn't get too frustrated and just leave. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch it all play out. Sarah, thanks as always for the great reporting. Errol Lewis, Shelby Talcott, we're not letting you leave. You get to, you get to keep hanging out, whether you like it or not. Let's bring them coffees, maybe. Is that what you're doing? Is that what you're doing? Okay, fine. We can do that. I'll take one. No. All right. American Pie burgers and all of the 4th of July staples, they're actually cheaper this year. And Nathaniel Meyerson is going to explain to us why. Coming up next.
good news for the Grillmasters gearing up for Independence Day cookouts. According to new data from the American Farm Bureau Federation, your holiday cookout could cost you less this year. CNN business reporter Nathaniel Meyerson took a closer look at the numbers. Nathaniel, welcome back. So what do you mean by affordable in this inflationary period? Right. So we are uh, excited for our 4th of July cookouts. Phil said he's buying for everybody. Wait, what? Uh, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah. Party of 10, it's going to cost us about 68 bucks this year. So that's cheaper than last year, down 3%. But it's still more expensive than it was in 2021, up 14%. So we see inflation starting to slow down, but we're still paying much more than we were a couple of years ago. All right, so I'm, I'm walking through Giant to buy mm-hmm. mass uh, items for the entire team since now you've volunteered <laughs> me to do that. What am I going to save money on? What am I not? All right, Phil. So beef prices, burgers are up about 4%. Okay. You definitely want to stay away from hamburger buns up 17% from a year ago. Chicken could be a good option down about 9% and then stock up on the lemonade down 16% from a year ago. So beef a little costlier, chicken down, Stock up on That's the lemonade. That's so wrong on the buns. It's just like a gluten-free situation. Yeah, we're going to have to do gluten-free this year. <laughs> it's not 4th of July without fireworks, of course. Tell us what's going on. What does the data show? Yeah, so people are really spending on fireworks. Uh, estimated about $2.4 billion this year on fireworks. That's up from $2.2 billion just a couple years ago. And then look at this. Pre-pandemic, just uh, about a billion dollars. So we've more than doubled our spending on fireworks. Everybody be careful (laughs) out there uh, tomorrow night. Enjoy the fireworks. I'm pro-safety, but I'm afraid that, like, a billion of those dollars are, like, my buddies from college. I remember during the pandemic 2020, (laughs) we would hear fireworks going on in many cities. It just felt like people got more used to handling them. Not good for the dogs, though. No, terrible for the dogs. Nathaniel, thank you so much. Have a good holiday. All right, a programming note, CNN's July 4th special. It returns, and of course, it will have an all-star lineup. Watch CNN's The Fourth in America live tomorrow night. Starts at 7 a.m., 7 a.m., 7 p.m. Eastern. (laughs) Not everyone is on the schedule. Yeah, but watch it. It'll be great. All right, well, also this morning, more than 7,000 flights are delayed Sunday because of severe weather. Ahead, what the numbers are looking like right now. And the man at the center of the landmark decision from the Supreme Court on LGBTQ rights says he has nothing to do with the case. He says he didn't reach out to the plaintiff and that he's not gay. But we're learning more about this story this morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Today, inspectors from the North Carolina Department of Labor will be on site at the Carowinds Amusement Park after a crack was discovered in one of its roller coasters. Now, park officials say the crack was spotted in one of the support pillars of the Fury 325, dubbed by the park as one of the tallest and longest rides in North. Yet you can see it right there. I'm not an expert on these things. Seems not great. Uh, This particular roller coaster has a drop between 300 and 399 feet and reaches up to 95 miles per hour. The ride will remain closed until inspections and repairs are made. Yeah. Yeah. Yay that they caught it. Pass I mean, yay, for me. the huge crack. Yeah. Good job seeing that. Um, are you a roller coaster person? I am not now after that. You're I think I'll Cedar take Point? a break. Cedar Point is a 
like the best I like place wooden in the roller coasters. It feels high stakes, but it's actually. Do you want to talk about Ohio? Let's see your point. We can't. Oh, really? Ohio for the next two hours. Oh, you're an Ohio person. Yeah. Okay. Why did you? you that was very dismissive. <laughs> how you framed it that? It just means we're going to talk Cedar about Cedar Point Ohio is the best roller coaster park <laughs> in the world, unquestionably, and mm-hmm. I don't appreciate that dismissive yep. attitude towards uh-huh. Ohio. Okay. And I hate the Red Sox too. So <laughs> oh, why don't no! we talk about Boston a little bit more? <laughs> you're, you're sorry, we're stuck together. When for does this show hours. start again? Right about. Seen in this morning, it's going to continue right now. This is about people who cowardly decide to come to a celebration and shoot it up. Police say it was shortly after midnight that gunshots ran out. We spoke to people here who said they ran for cover. We do know more than one person was shooting. This is insanity. This cannot be the society that we are expected to live in. We saw the most air passengers, uh, not only since COVID, but we think ever. Severe weather affecting much of the country. Flash flooding in Chicago today, leaving several cars underwater. Left early, very early, only to be told that our flight was delayed. Zero problems whatsoever. I got lucky. Donald Trump pressured Arizona Governor Doug Ducey in a phone call after the 2020 election. That was really the effort throughout that time was to go to the states and try and get them to do investigations to find fraud. No, I don't remember any pressure. These are the types of rulings that signal a dangerous creep towards authoritarianism and centralization of power in the court. This is about empowering people and their rights. The state of Colorado has been silencing and coercing my speech. The court's decision yesterday protects speech. Sending these kinds of things to the courts for the clear purpose of chipping away at the equality and the rights that have so recently been won. People were saying it was TikTok's new app, kind of like a mix between Instagram and Pinterest. Lemonade is owned by ByteDance, the same company behind TikTok. That's raising some eyebrows among security experts. When you hear about something like this, especially if it's from TikTok, you want to make sure you're some of the first people there. Oh, good Monday morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly here. My good pal, Audie Cornish. Poppy is off. How are we doing so far? You feel good? We're doing okay, except okay. except severe weather is wreaking havoc on holiday travel again. So this morning, airlines are trying to bounce back from a wave of flight delays and cancellations. This is during one of the busiest weekends of the year. Just yesterday, we're talking 7,500 flights delayed, 500 canceled. And in the Chicago area, you add the dramatic weather to it. Nearly nine inches of rain drenched some parts of the city and the surrounding area. CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar is tracking it all for us. And Allison, when you're looking at the map, what can we expect today? Right, so a lot more showers and thunderstorms, and in some cases, the same areas that just saw it yesterday. Two main focal points today. The first is really going to be up and down much of the East Coast today, and a secondary wave that's across portions of the Northern Plains as well as the Midwest. Now, we have some active showers ongoing already this morning, mainly across the Northeast, but a few also in portions of the Mid-Atlantic. Now, when we go through the rest of the day, we'll get a second wave really starting to develop this afternoon and into the evening. So Washington, D.C., New York, down to Atlanta. 
Indiana and a secondary system out to the west, including Minneapolis. Main threats will be damaging winds, large hail and the potential for some tornadoes. That secondary wave again, you really start to see it fire up this afternoon and into the evening thanks to the heating of the day and then more showers and thunderstorms yet again for the holiday itself tomorrow. So we do still have the potential for some strong to severe thunderstorms again. Some of the same areas today like New York, DC and Atlanta, but also more becoming more widespread across the central US, but the threats themselves remain the same. And another concern still is going to be the heat. Several heat advisories in the southeast and some excessive heat warnings out into the west. Back to you. All right, Allison Char, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN Aviation correspondent Pete Montine. He's live at Reagan National Airport near D.C. And Pete, the expectations were set in records this weekend in terms of number of people screened by the TSA. Did it meet the busy expectations? Met the busy expectation, exceeded the busy expectation. The TSA anticipated 2.82 million people at airports nationwide on Friday. Instead, we saw 2.88 million people. That's not a high of the pandemic era. It is an all-time record, the highest number we have seen since December 1st, 2019, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So these are huge numbers. The good news right now is that things are starting off relatively smooth, but never say never. The day is still relatively young, and I just checked FlightAware. So far, we've seen about 80 cancellations in the U.S. Pales in comparison to what we saw yesterday. In fact, the numbers really ramped up as the day was went on, and bad weather hit the East Coast. We saw about 600 cancellations in the U.S. yesterday, although last week was a lot worse. So we are on the track to getting a little bit better. One caveat here, though, the FAA does warn that there could be ground stops today because of thunderstorms later this afternoon in New York, which has been a trouble spot, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, in D.C., all the way down to Miami. But I want you to listen now to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He says things are on the path to getting back on track. We're watching more severe potential for severe weather. That's what touched off all of these problems about a week ago. Uh, but you look at where we were a year ago, where even on blue sky days with no severe weather, there were really unacceptable levels of cancellations and delays. We've come a long way. United Airlines canceled more flights than any other airline last week. And in a new memo, CEO Scott Kirby says he is committing to looking again at the airline's crew scheduling system, also partnering better with the FAA, an agency that he initially blamed for a lot of these cancellations early last week. And he's also saying that the airline will take another hard look at its hub in Newark, where there may be simply too many flights scheduled and the airline could draw down its schedule there a little bit. Another big test on the horizon for airlines. All those people who left on Friday, that 2.88 million number, now they're going to start coming home. We'll see if airlines can handle it. Okay, you're not really giving me a sense that they can. So what are you expecting over the next two days? <laughs> you know, we'll see. The TSA says the big number was on Friday. And, you know, it's a long week. And so the way the holiday falls, people trickle back home a little bit slower. So we'll see if people actually extend their holiday because the 4th falls on a Tuesday. They may extend it into Wednesday or Thursday. They may simply take the entire week. So the numbers will be high overall. It's not going to have some another, another big peak. We'll probably just see high number day after high number day. And that will make a big challenge for the TSA and not only uh, them, but the airlines as well. Well. Pete Montine, thanks so much. 
All right. Well, also this morning, we're watching something that I've been trying to figure out over the course of the entirety of the last weekend. Uh, questions swirling around a recent Supreme Court decision. Now, you'll remember the court ruled last week in favor of a Christian web designer who says she shouldn't be forced to create sites for same-sex weddings. But now, the man cited in the case, named Stewart, says he never even requested a website and says he's not only straight and married to a woman, but he's a web designer himself. Now, in an interview with CNN, he said, quote, I've never asked anybody to design a website for me, so it's all very strange. I certainly didn't contact her, and whatever the information in that request is, is fake. CNN's Joan Biskupic joins us live from Washington, D.C. Um, Joan is the author of Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. She also can explain all the questions. Every question I have, Joan ends up answering it when we're together in Washington. So my question is, does this actually matter? Is it relevant to the case? Good morning, Phil and Audie. Uh, actually, Phil, you know what? No, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. The Supreme Court brushed by lots of facts in this case right from the start. The woman who challenged the uh, Colorado law did it as what's known as a pre-enforcement challenge. They had never even cited her in any way. And what the Supreme Court said is that she had to essentially just show two things. One is that she wasn't going to uh, produce any kind of message that conflicted with her con Christian beliefs. And what she said was that she did not believe in same-sex marriage. She believes marriage is between one man and one woman. So she, that was one key factor that she laid down. The other factor was just simply that Colorado has an interest in, in this law and would want to carry out its law, enforce the law against people who discriminate against same-sex uh, same -sex couples. The law itself says that if, uh, you, if you operate a public accommodation, a business open to the public, you cannot discriminate on the basis of several factors. Race, sex, and sexual orientation is one of them. So from the start, there were a lot of questions about the facts of this case, Phil, and they came, that issue came up during oral arguments, and the Colorado officials were from the start saying, look, the facts here are very elusive. We don't even know what kind of website she's going to have. And during oral arguments, the justices essentially said, it doesn't matter. Uh, as I said, both the state of Colorado and the Solicitor General of the United States said, it is too early to hear this case. So the justices brushed that back. When Neil Gorsuch read his opinion from the bench on Friday, Phil, he said, we have two things where, uh, that are part of the stipulations, kind of the basics here. One is she's not going to create a message that conflicts with her religious beliefs. And two, Colorado wants to enforce its public accommodations law. Earlier episodes about someone who might have sent a message to her saying that they wanted her to do a website, that wasn't part of the record once it got to the Supreme Court. And frankly, Phil, I, it doesn't look like the lower court ju judges from the Tenth Circuit even relied on that. So I can understand why many people would be disturbed by this new information. But it's not the kind of information that appears to be able to disturb this Supreme Court at all. Joan, can I ask one follow-up to that, which doesn't sure. mean in the future that there are any vulnerabilities in this area of the law, right? Uh, public accommodations law obviously goes back to the civil rights period in terms of conflict. Uh, does this ruling mean anything going forward, or these questions that we're talking about today mean anything going forward? Um, two, two separate things, Audie. In terms of the larger picture that you're talking about, in terms of how this ruling could have a reverber reverberations for other 
public accommodations laws? Yes. I mean, this is this is a big deal. This is, as Justice Sotomayor said, the first time the Supreme Court said that a public accommodations law is going to essentially give a pass to someone for discriminating, in this case, on the basis of sexual orientation. But Justice Sotomayor and others in the dissent said, you know, this could open the door to groups, um, businesses saying they don't want to serve certain clients based on other protected characteristics such as race and sex. Uh, but in terms of just the specific facts that have been brought forward by Mr. Stewart here, uh, I don't think that will affect it. But as I say, many repercussions down the road, Addie. Joan, thanks so much. Thank you. Now we want to bring in CNN political commentator again, Errol Lewis. Thanks, Errol. And former Democratic Congressman Max Rose and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Welcome back. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about this kind of like rightward shift people are talking about with the court overall. Um, right now, it seems like progressives are sort of stuck complaining about it. What's sort of the message for them coming out of this period? Well, Look, the, the, the message is, is that politics matters. Votes matter. Elections matter, particularly as we're looking at the Senate, of course, where Supreme Court justices are confirmed, as but well as a young the, progressive voter. They're like, we, we got you the White House and you have the Senate. What gives? Things still are terrible. For well, me. It, it, it's people are pissed off. And that usually means that they're going to vote more, not less. But of course, you know, politics and voting is not a hyper intellectual affair. People are not going to necessarily go out and vote because of this one ruling, but they are going to go out and vote with incredible passion because of the overarching narrative of the Supreme Court's war on people's rights and our democracy. Errol, this do you think this message resonates? Yeah, it will have to. I mean, the, the, in fact, it's not so much the message. I think people are going to feel it viscerally and realize that they have to get involved in politics. I mean, we know that's what that happened with Roe v. Wade. Do you feel like it's going to happen with this collection of other cases? Well, it's the same thing, right? It, it is the same Supreme I mean, the numbers, though, are dramatically different in terms of public perception on the actual cases themselves. Well, but I don't think that that's how people are experiencing the way that this Supreme Court is acting. I think that when you're looking at the average voter two days before Election Day, what they are feeling is that this institution is incredibly dangerous right now and incredibly scary because there, are, there appear to be no rights any longer that are sacrosanct. And that's what's going to drive people. They are going to think about the Roe ruling alongside rulings like this. And there is no doubt in my mind that it is going to mobilize voters. So whether anybody loves or hates what the Supreme Court has been doing recently, I think one of the big takeaways from last week is this is a court that is seizing more power for itself than in any time in recent history. And they're doing that a couple ways. There's a difference, by the way, between ideological conservatism and judicial conservatism. And usually judges and justices try to rule on cases as narrowly as possible and only rule on actual cases. And the example we were just talking about with Joan, where you have this fact scenario that's now come into question, typically the Supreme Court would not even take a case like that because of this doctrine called standing. We don't take hypotheticals. We don't issue advisory opinions. We wait until the facts have all played out and then we ruled. And the Supreme Court showed us in that case that they are willing to essentially rule on hypotheticals, forward-looking hypotheticals. That enables the court to take more cases. The other thing that the Supreme Court's doing is twice now in the last year, in, in very important ways, the Dobbs decision, and then the decision that we saw last week uh, on affirmative action, they're overruling longstanding, 40, 50-year longstanding 
precedents. Now, the court can overrule precedent. People say when. The real answer is when you have five or more justices. So this court, to me, is uniquely powerful. But are calls to limit its power something that voters have an appetite for? There's, there's calls to limit its power, and then it, it sort of dovetails with these really important questions about w- whether or not there are conflicts of interest on the court, whether or not there's been disclosure, whether or not they can be held accountable when uh, actions that would get you in trouble in any other uh, field, including the federal courts themselves, uh, just seem to just kind of go away. I mean, when you have a Supreme Court justice whose you know, mother is living in a house paid for by a guy who's got business before the court or, or interests that are undeniably going to be affected by rulings from the court, and he doesn't disclose it, and he doesn't want to talk about it, and he thinks everything is fine, and then you find another instance and another instance and flying on a private plane, and you know the explanations are just clearly inadequate, like, oh, I barely know the guy, or it was going to be an empty plane seat. And it's like, if you're, if you're friends with the guy, you have to recuse yourself. If you're not friends with the guy, what are you doing on his private plane? You know, these kind of questions. I, and, and because the political class, a lot of members of Congress are raising these issues, I think it does become something that voters are going to at least notice. And that dovetailing with the rightward shift of the court, the judicial activism of the court, I think sort of uh, um, makes this something that is going to be politically salient. It'll be up to, you know, some political entrepreneur to come and take advantage of it. Max, can I ask you, uh, you know, on the kind of the political atmosphere at this moment in time, and particularly when it comes to gay rights, we saw this, uh, that Ron DeSantis super PAC put out an ad attacking former President Trump for his support for LGBTQ rights. I think we've got some of it. I want to play at least a little bit of it. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. Yeah, I mean, like, whatever drugs that guy was on who made that. Um, <laughs> I salute the editor of that ad. <laughs> and to be clear, like, the campaign did not make that, whatever that was, but yeah. they didn't back away from it, and some of them retweeted it, and then they defended sure. the retweeting of it. Yeah. I think my question is, is, with stuff like this beyond the earned media element, for which we are providing them, um, it's what's your end game here? Like, wh- who what's are the they targeting? Yeah. What's the message? This sure. doesn't happen in isolation. Like, they're talking about this. Why? And, and, first of all, I don't care that it was a super PAC ad. The campaign is responsible for it. And this notion that there's some division between super PACs and regular campaigns in modern day politics is totally BS. And this ad is illustrative of what Ron DeSantis is actually trying to do here, which is a hate filled, utterly xenophobic primary campaign that then he thinks that he's going to be able to shift to the center and everyone's going to forget about that because he's going to try to go to outflank Donald Trump from the right. There's no chance that this works. Donald Trump has locked up about 25%, 30% of the Republican primary base. And it's those people, and this is no, we can judge them, I'll judge them all I want, but they're motivated by ads like that. DeSantis is not going to pull them away, saying that he's more more Trumpy than Trump. He's more hate-filled than Trump. It's appalling, but just as appalling as it is, it's also politically incoherent. I do not understand what he's trying to do. Errol, can I, I mean, and I, I understand that donors aren't the most important thing, but like, I don't know Republican donors that are in anywhere near that place. And it, it I, looks, the Republican Party had moved pretty sharply away from this. And Trump sure. is a good example of that in 2016. Like he, right. he was in his uh, 
uh, in his nomination speech, but he was De mentioning. DeSantis seems Your to be... spoke at the, at the convention. He, DeSantis appears to be trying to do what uh, social conservative candidates have done for the last several cycles, which is get to the evangelical base in Iowa and spark something and then try and build on that Even momentum. Trump. Didn't work for Ted Cruz. Didn't work for, you know, I mean, on yeah. down the line, right? Didn't work for Pat Robertson. It, it, it generally doesn't work, but... Uh, it did work for George W. Bush 20 years ago. And so some people think that they can sort of catch fire and do it all over again. I don't think that's a, a, a sound assumption, but that seems to be what Ron DeSantis is up to. All right, Errol, Ellie Max, stay with us. Well, the hunt is underway for multiple suspects after a mass shooting killed at least two people and wounded dozens more at a block party in Baltimore. The Baltimore mayor will join us live just moments from now with the latest... And a common sweetener in chewing gum, toothpaste, and popular drinks like Diet Coke is coming under new scrutiny for its potential links to cancer. We're going to break down what we know about the upcoming announcement from the World Health Organization. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Detectives, federal partners are still looking for evidence, and we'll continue to look for evidence until we find everything that we need to prosecute and arrest these individuals. Well, this morning, a police hunt is underway this morning in Baltimore as investigators are searching for any answers in the weekend shooting there. It left two people dead and 28 others injured, most of them teenagers. Now, officials say at least two people opened fire on a holiday block party just past midnight on Sunday, but they say there may have been more people involved. Right now, there's no known motive, and they're asking anyone uh, with information to come forward. Now, we are three days into July, already four mass shootings this month. For the year, the U.S. stands at a staggering 339 mass shootings. With us now, the mayor of Baltimore, Brandon Scott. Mr. Mayor, um, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. I, I guess I would start with, are there any updates on the investigation itself, on the manhunt? Where do things stand? Still ongoing. Like I said the other day, we will not rest uh, until we find those who cowardly decided to shoot up this block party and carry out acts of violence, uh, with, which we know will be illegal, illegal guns. But we no, no further updates. We'll be giving a press update later today with any new things. But as of right now, uh, we are still uh, investigating, going through every single lead, every minute, every second of footage, everything that we have to find out who uh, decided to disrupt uh, this peaceful event in this way. Mayor Scott, you've said that this year alone, Baltimore PD has confiscated, what, 1,300 illegal weapons. Do you have a sense of where guns are coming from, the sort of illegal supply of guns are coming from into the city? Well, listen, we know historically most we recover every year more guns that come from other states, uh, the other 50 states than in Maryland combined. So we know that that's how it happens. We know that we've recovered uh, hundreds of ghost guns uh, this year, something that we have seen uh, decline this year. Uh, but uh, we recovered over 400 of them last year. These guns come into Maryland. And I want to be very clear about this because Maryland has gun laws that actually have an impact. We have a ghost gun ban, which is why you see those numbers coming down. Uh, but these weapons come from Virginia. They come from Texas. They come from Florida. They come from Alabama. They come from everywhere uh, in, in this country. And this is why it's critically important, not just for me as the mayor of Baltimore, but every mayor that will tell you the same thing. We have to deal with this issue of guns and the flow of illegal guns into the hands of people who should not have them at the national level. Ghost guns should be banned at the national 
level. Congress should be taking these things up right now, uh, as they said they would after Columbine happened way back in 1999. And here we are, dozens, dozens of, of, of years later, decades later at this point, and we're still dealing with mass shootings because of the inaction to deal with this issue on the national level. This can no longer be an issue that falls to the feet of local police, local, local elected officials, or state governments. Mr. Mayor, you've made the point uh, both in your press comments yesterday but also in, in some of your interviews that this is a multifaceted kind of uh, process to some degree. The approach, it's not just about one thing or, or four things or five things. It's community-based. It's, it's wide-ranging. I was struck yesterday when you made the point uh, when you asked people to treat this like it was a, a mass shooting in a, a rural uh, community as well. Uh, can you elaborate on that? I, I think I understood the point you were making, but I just, it was an interesting one, and the framing of it was interesting. What you meant for your community specifically. Well, my community knows this. We know that, uh, and when you think about this country and the history of mass shootings, uh, most of the time when we talk about this, we're talking about it being a school in a rural community or a suburban white community. And when it happens in Baltimore or Chicago or D.C., it doesn't get that same attention. These black American lives, children's lives matter just as anyone else. We're just asking for all of them to be treated the same. Any mass shooting, anytime anyone is murdered with an illegal gun in this country should be treated the same because it should not happen in the country that is the, the leader of the free world. But it does because we as a country still allow uh, the sanctity of American guns to outweigh the sanctity of Americans' lives, and particularly Americans' children's lives. And that is something that we have to change. No one is saying that people shouldn't be able to have their right to have weapons, but those who shouldn't have them, and it shouldn't be easier for a young person to get a gun for than me to be able to go to CVS and buy my allergy medication. Mayor, I just want to ask one other question, which is that the Baltimore Police Department has struggled a lot in the last couple of years. It's cycled through a couple of chiefs. Do you think you're in position to uh, have the trust and relationship with the community that you would need to find this suspect or to deal with the teen violence in general? Well, I will just tell you this. I just disagree with that. We've actually had the same police commissioner who uh, decided to retire since 2018 until uh, just a few weeks ago. And Baltimore, coming out of uh, the Freddie Gray unrest, is now seen across the country as a department that is dealing with reform and fighting crime the right way. We're consistently hosting folks at the behest of the Department of Justice and others from other departments about how to put in those reforms uh, through the work of our, our now former commissioner, Police Commissioner Harrison and now to Commissioner Worley. And even as we're going through this tra tragic incident, as I said yesterday, we're a city that has seen a 20% reduction in homicides. And even with this mass shooting, seeing a reduction in non-fatal shootings, we're going to continue to do that work because for me, one is too many. And yes, we're going to continue to build those bridges, rebuild bridges, build bridges that were never happening in our community. But this department has changed leaps and bounds through our consent decree and those reforms efforts and focusing in on what they need to be focused on, illegal guns, those hold, bringing them, those trafficking, those selling them, and holding those people accountable, and we will continue to do that. All right, Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott, we appreciate your time, sir. I know it's a very busy time for you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now, on the West Bank, at least seven people are dead and dozens of others are injured after Israeli airstrikes hit the city of Janine. We're live in Tel Aviv next.
The death toll in the city of Jenin rising to seven this morning after an Israeli military operation in the West Bank. The Palestinian Ministry of Health blames Israeli airstrikes for three of those deaths and for the dozens of others injured. The IDF says its forces were targeting so-called terrorist infrastructure. CNN's Hadass Gold joins us live from Tel Aviv. And Hadass, how much have you learned? What can you tell us? Well, what's interesting about this raid that we saw overnight is just the sheer scale of it. Over the past year and a half or so, we've regularly been reporting on these regular Israeli military operations in the occupied West Bank. This after a wave of terror attacks targeting Israelis. The Israeli military saying that they try to go in to root out militants. And it seems as though every single time we talk about these raids, the intensity goes up and up, up to the point that we always kind of refer back to the days of the second intifada when tanks were rolling through cities of the occupied West Bank. And these are the images we are starting to see once again. Overnight, the Israeli military saying that around 1 a.m. is when their drones uh, carried out airstrikes in Janine refugee camp. This has long been a hotspot of militant activity, a hotspot of Israeli military raids. Now, the idea of saying that they targeted command and control centers as well as improvised rocket launchers, explosives manufacturing site, and the like. They're saying that their main focus of this operation that as of an hour ago was still on going is the infrastructure of these militant cells saying that they want to uh, remove Janine as a safe haven for militants. They've carried out at least 10 different airstrikes and we know that the size of at least a brigade, that means several hundred soldiers were taking place in this operation. And for the first time since the early 2000s, we saw tanks on the outskirts of Janine. Now there are at least eight Palestinians we know who have been confirmed killed. At least two dozen others have been injured. One Israeli soldier was injured at as well, and we should note that as of the last hour, this is still ongoing. The Israeli military saying clashes are currently ongoing outside of a mosque in Jinin, and they carried out another airstrike outside of that mosque. So, what we need to keep an eye on right now is how long this operation will go on and whether other parts of the West Bank and potentially even Gaza will get involved. We do know that Hamas, the militant group, the group that controls Gaza, has called on all of their cells now to engage. Adi. Hadas, thank you for this reporting. Well, the World Health Organization is taking a closer look at potential links between aspartame, one of the most common artificial sweeteners, and cancer. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here with what you, particularly going into the July 4th barbecue season, actually need to know. So this is probably the last thing you want to hear before you crack open a soda at your 4th of July barbecue, but... It's important. The World Health Organization has been looking, taking a closer look at the potential links between aspartame and cancer. Now, aspartame is one of the most common artificial sweeteners used in drinks and food. It's been FDA approved for decades. Later this month, the WHO agency is set to release its finding on the carcinogenic effects of the sweetener and how much of it is acceptable to have daily. CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now with more. And Sanjay, let's start with how prevalent aspartame might actually be in our food. What type of products is this usually found in? Well, it's probably safe to say that everybody who's watching right now has at some point or another had aspartame. I mean, as you, as you point out, for over 40 years, uh, it's been approved. It's been used in all sorts of different products from beverages, which is the primary sort of pri product, diet beverages, but also things like breakfast cereals and chewing gum and cough drops. It's been out there for a long time. It's about 200 times sweeter 
than typical table sugar. So you can use small amounts. It makes it very easy for these manufacturers to use that to sweeten their products. And again, they've been doing it for a long time. One thing that's going to come out, I think, in these WHO discussions is this old adage, which is the dose makes the poison. Right? Anything in a certain dose could potentially be poisonous or harmful. So how much uh, aspartame is potentially harmful? That's the real question. The FDA, as you might imagine, they've analyzed this for years. And where they, where they came down and it says 50 milligrams per kilogram is what they think is potentially problematic. What does that mean? About 22 cans of diet soda, 116 cups of coffee with two sweetener packets. I'm showing you these numbers because I just want to give you an idea that, again, anything can be problematic in certain doses, but take a look at just how high you'd have to get to be problematic, at least according to the FDA. So what's the level of concern? I mean, at this point, what could this evaluation actually mean for consumers? Yeah, so we'll see, Audie. Yeah, July 14th is when the WHO is going to issue their formal statement on it. And at that point, it'll be a recommendation. I mean, there's, there's no mandates or anything that comes from this. But it's interesting, the way the WHO has approached this in the past, these types of things in the past, is they've listed them in certain categories. So something that is definitively carcinogenic, you know, uh, certain types of radiation, for example, definitively carcinogenic. Probably carcinogenic is the next thing. Possibly carcinogenic. And to give you some context, cell phone usage was listed by the WHO as being possibly carcinogenic at certain levels and then not classifiable. So, so we'll see what they say. Again, that comes out July 14th, but it could fall into the category again of, of possibly carcinogenic like cell phones, but hopefully with some added context of, of again, what is the dose? The dose makes the poison. How much are we talking about here? So obviously everybody knows water, unsweetened teas, those are kind of the best pathways here for beverages. But for those of us who want to enjoy an occasional soda, are the potential harmful effects of aspartame more dangerous than, say, the high amount of sugar in regular soda? I guess what I'm asking here is, are you actually better off reaching for the diet soda instead of the full <laughs> sugar soda? Can sugar substitutes actually help with something like weight loss? Yeah, look, if it's occasional, then I think either one is, is okay uh, for all the reasons that I j just mentioned. Um, but I think it's, it's important to sort of look, when you have 40 years plus of data on these things, you now have the opportunity to go back and say, how much of a difference did it make? Uh, and to your point, Phil, um, it, there's, no, there's no benefit really long term in terms of weight loss from using these non-caloric sweeteners. That's what the data shows over and over again. People will still reach for sweetened products with sugar later on in the day perhaps they drink diet soda all day ice cream at night whatever it might be so long term not a problem but sugar in and of itself is is problematic we eat too much sugar so starting to train our taste buds for example to not uh, want as much of the sweet taste that's probably going to be one of the biggest benefits uh, really uh, in terms of the long-term benefits choosing no sugar sugar added foods really just watching for all the stealth sugar in products because it's out there even in products that don't taste sweet and look at those nutrition labels obviously sugar in and of itself we used to get it just a couple times a year when fruit fell from the trees. And now people eat dozens of pounds of it every year, sometimes just unknowingly. Yeah, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. You know, I thought he was going to be delivering bad news about what I could and couldn't drink. And per usual, it's nuanced, contextualized, it's, and I feel better it now. Is, it I is. I feel better now. The message is still the same. Don't drink so much soda, pretty much. <laughs>
In Montana, five TikTok social media influencers were suing over the state's new ban on the app. Turns out TikTok has been quietly funding those legal challenges. And CNN's Ressi Yurkevich explores the parent company's new app, Lemon 8, as influencers try to stay ahead of potential regulation. When you hear about something like this, especially if it's from TikTok, you want to make sure you're some of the first people there. Mississippi and Georgia joined the growing list of states that have banned TikTok on any government-issued devices. The bans went into effect over the weekend, and they come as more lawmakers in the U.S. and around the world push to block the Chinese-owned app. And as the bans continue to rack up, some experts say TikTok's parent company has launched a new social media app in response. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich spoke with some influencers who are getting ahead of the game. People started saying, oh, have you heard about Lemonade? And I'm like, what, what is this, like, Lemonade? What? I don't know. With more than half a million followers on TikTok and Instagram combined. You guys are known as? Sister Snacking. Even they hadn't heard of Lemon 8. People were saying it was TikTok's new app, kind of like a mix between Instagram and Pinterest. They joined Lemon 8 in April and have less than 40 followers, but say it isn't about follower count for them just yet. When you hear about something like this, especially if it's from TikTok, you want to make sure you're some of the first people there. Lemonade is owned by ByteDance, the same company behind TikTok. That's raising some eyebrows among security experts and lawmakers. But TikTok has 150 million users in the U.S., compared to Lemonade, which has only 900,000 active monthly users, and say they're creating a community where people discover and share content related to beauty, fashion, travel, and more in an authentic and diverse environment. Even when you're talking about a platform like Lemonade, which can start with something that seems quite benign, there might be less of a national security concern. But four or five years ago, when we started raising the alarm about TikTok, we encountered the same thing. Now, bills like the Restrict Act are swirling around Congress to address concerns that foreign countries could access U.S. user data through social media apps. Two years ago, I became the CEO of TikTok. TikTok CEO testified in March he's seen no evidence the Chinese government has accessed any of that data. Lemonade declined to answer questions about where data on its app is stored. Good afternoon, everyone. The bill's co-sponsor, Senator Mark Warner, told CNN, today we're talking about TikTok, but as the growth of Lemonade shows, new apps and tools are popping up constantly. We need a real strategy to address them. No more whack-a-mole. I think it's definitely possible that ByteDance is seeing some of the writing on the wall with TikTok in the U.S. and is looking for a plan B. N.K. Madani says she was hired and paid by an influencer agency to create content promoting Lemonade. I was a little skeptical at first. I didn't know what it was. I had never heard of it. But now she says she's having fun exploring what Lemonade could be. But it's no rival to TikTok yet. That buzz of Lemonade came from the almost removal of TikTok. A lot of more people are talking about it now, but I think it is solely because of that mini scare that we all had. And where consumers are, brands follow. I think social media has driven a lot of our organic awareness, so I think it counts for about 85% of our sales. The beauty brand Youthphoria found massive success on TikTok and is seeing if it can squeeze some more juice out of Lemonade.
I think the fact that it's created by a parent company that's really successful, that's very, very successful at creating a social media platform, that was really interesting. And I'm watching it kind of pick up steam. It's still to be determined if Lemonade's going to be that platform for us. And we asked the influencers that we spoke with whether they have concerns about national security risks or their privacy data. They said that they did not. They feel the good outweighs the bad in terms of TikTok and Lemonade, because you have to remember that so many of these influencers make a ton of money off these apps. And Lemonade is not really huge here in the U.S. yet. It is very big in Europe. Some of the influencers wonder if alone Lemonade will become popular, but they do say that the power and the strength of ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, is what can really help to grow Lemonade in the U.S. People are watching and they're trying to figure out if this is going to be the next TikTok. All right, Vanessa, great piece. Stay with us. I want to bring the panel back in. Errol, um, Audi was taking a poll during the break of who has thoughts on this. You <laughs> got thoughts. vigorously nodded yeah, your head. Yeah. So now I'm fascinated as to what your actual thoughts are here. Well, look, for, first of all, Lemonade is, is very different from TikTok as far as the user experience. I mean, TikTok is famously addictive. The average user is on for, you know, 80, 90 minutes at a time. Lemonade is really a little bit more directed, more curated, quieter in a lot of ways. Not a lot of interaction uh, across different content creator. So if you're really looking for something and you're used to the Facebook experience or the Instagram experience, Lemonade will feel familiar and it will be used in a similar way. So in some ways, they're really quite divergent. Um, I think all of the, the government concerns about, about ByteDance, about uh, ch Chinese ownership and access to not just information, but uh, the, the, the activities of young people in America those are real concerns, Vanessa, and they should be taken seriously. If Lemonade is based in Europe, is that correct? Europe has far more yeah. stringent sort of laws around data protection. Does that mean anything? It's founded in, uh, started in Japan, made, made its way through Europe. I think that every country is, is looking at this right now. Lemonade is still very new. People are just trying to get a hold of what's happening on TikTok. People are a little behind the curve on that. At least governments feel like they're behind the curve on that. Um, but Lemonade is really targeted for an older audience audience for women who are about 30 and older. It's not going after the millennial audience. You also have to remember that uh, TikTok became popular at a time when people didn't have a lot to do, the pandemic. Lemonade is basically launching right now in the U.S. People are more addicted to TikTok. It's interesting to see if the transition will happen to Lemonade. But I think the concerns are there and people are trying to figure out whether or not they need to put restrictions and laws in place for that. So, and TikTok is showing some real legal savvy within our American system, right? They're anticipating, I mean, there have been now uh, movements by states to ban TikTok and they're bringing lawsuits. And one thing they're doing that may raise some eyebrows is they're funding these lawsuits. They're funding creators, right? Now, first of all, there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. We do see people funding interested lawsuits, but the creators have better First Amendment claims than TikTok itself. So it's a smart legal strategy, and we'll have to follow these cases as they move through the courts. All right. Um, Max, we're going to talk about TikTok with you after the break, but Appreciate since you and I you. aren't on it, I figured we can kind of move on. Neither am I, though. <laughs> yeah, but you do great reporting on it. Thank so you. Okay, new reporting that former President Trump pressured Arizona's then-governor to help overturn his 2020 election defeat. What it could mean for the special counsel's investigation. Plus, why an attack ad posted by Ron DeSantis' campaign is being labeled as homophobic. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Uh, we are still uh, investigating, going through every single lead, every minute, every second of footage, everything that we have to find out who uh, decided to disrupt uh, this peaceful event in this way. Oh, good Monday morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly. Audie Cornish is here with me. And a manhunt is underway right now for multiple suspects after a mass shooting killed at least two people and injured dozens more at a block party in Baltimore. Victims, mostly teenagers, some as young as 13. Mike Pence responding after a CNN report that Donald Trump made him call the governor of Arizona to try and overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Plus, a Christian web designer told the Supreme Court a gay man wanted her to make a site for his same-sex wedding. He says he never did. He's straight and he's married to a woman. Alrighty, this hour of CNN this morning starts right now. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I, you're still here, and I, I appreciate that because at various points in the last two hours, I was like, oh, he's going to leave if I push up, this any further. Yeah, no, it's nice to see you. It's nice to see you <laughs> as well. And there is new reaction this morning from former Vice President Mike Pence just one day after CNN learned that Donald Trump, then President Donald Trump, pressured then Arizona Governor Doug Ducey to help overturn his 2020 defeat pressure of the governor rebuffed. Now, Pence says he didn't recall any pressure from Trump to help push Ducey to find fraud. I did check in uh, with uh, not only Governor Ducey, but other governors in states that were going through the legal process of reviewing their election results. But uh, there was no pressure involved. Margaret, I was I was calling to get an update. I passed along that information uh, to the president and uh, it was no more, no less than that. According to The Washington Post, Ducey told a donor that he was surprised that he hadn't heard from special counsel Jack Smith's office about the phone calls with Trump and Pence, at least according to that donor. After all, we do know that Smith spoke to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffs Raffensperger about this call. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Still surreal every time I listen to it. All right, pressure on state and local officials. That's just one facet of the federal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. One where it seems prosecutors are getting closer and closer to potential charging decisions. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here. And Ellie, let's kind of start broaden it out and then drill in a little bit. What is DOJ looking at right now? Yeah, Phil, with all the focus on Mar-a-Lago, it's easy to forget Jack Smith has another job on his hands. He's got to look at January 6th. Now, Jack Smith is focusing on this effort that really took hold after Trump lost the election to try to swing and steal the election results in these seven swing states, including by directly pressuring state officials. We know about the infamous phone call that we just heard that Trump placed to Brad Raffensperger asking him to just find 11,780 votes. Now, we know that last week, Jack Smith did speak with Brad Raffensperger, arguably belatedly. It's been a year since he testified in front of the January 6th committee. And we're also now learning that Donald Trump pressured the then governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey. Now, 
Doug Ducey has said Jack Smith has actually not contacted him. That could be on the to-do list, and I think it's very consistent with what DOJ has been doing. There's also been this focus on what we call the fake electors scheme. And what that means is there was a coordinated effort, all seven of these states, people working for and with Trump and his team, put together actual documents that they actually submitted to the National Archives that said, we are the rightly selected electors for Donald Trump. And then People, Republicans, Trump supporters from those states actually signed those certifications. Now, we know the DOJ has spoken with several of these fake electors. We don't know exactly who. They've been given immunity, meaning you have to testify. We're not going to use your statements against you. Tells me DOJ sees these folks as potential witnesses. So what else at this point uh, would they be looking into? What else has come on the table? Yeah, so as that effort clearly was not going to succeed. The focus turned instead to last-minute efforts. They established this war room at the Willard Hotel a couple blocks away from the White House. Rudy Giuliani was in that war room. We know DOJ has spoken to Rudy Giuliani. Query whether he can ever be a credible witness. I sure as heck would never rely on him, but they've spoken with him. We also know that DOJ has spoken with Mark Meadows. Now, he didn't physically go to the war room, but we've seen public testimony that he called over to the war room on January 5th. And of course, the end result, one of the end results of that war room was they decided, let's put pressure on Mike Pence to just throw out the electoral votes when he has to count them on January 6th. Of course, Pence refused to do that. And then Donald Trump, during the actual riot, 2.24 p.m., while the Capitol was being stormed, sent this negative tweet about Mike Pence saying he didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. Now, Mike Pence has also spoken to DOJ. He's testified in the grand jury. So that's another base that they've covered. There's a lot of buzz right now that a potential charging decision could be coming in the very near term. We don't know when. Yeah. That's all speculation, like always. What, what are prosecutors looking at? So sometimes we say all of this or January 6th, but let's look at what specific crimes could be in play here. Obstruction of an official proceeding, meaning they tried to block the counting of electoral votes. That charge has been used successfully against many of the people who actually stormed the Capitol. Potentially false statements. Remember those false elector certificates? They're false. They were actually submitted to the archives. Conspiracy to defraud the United States is sort of the broadest legal theory, meaning they tried to cheat the election. And then people have said, could there be incitement charges for what Donald Trump said at the ellipse? Did he incite the riot? That's going to be difficult because, yes, he said we're going to go down to the Capitol. Yes, he said you're going to fight like hell. But he also said be peaceful and patriotic. And just to keep in mind what's happening inside DOJ, Jack Smith is the special counsel. He's running this investigation. When it comes to January 6th, he's going to recommend indict or do not indict. Either way, it then goes to the attorney general. Now, the AG has to defer to Jack Smith. But we've already seen Merrick Garland is willing to approve a criminal charge of the president. So, yes, it does look like they're working towards charging decisions, and these are going to be the big decisions that have to be made. Significant, potentially soon. We'll have to wait and see. Ellie, come on back. All right. We're going to, we're going to sit down. As, I'll follow you. As they're headed back, we have here some of our politics reporter Shelby Talcott and, of course, former New York Congressman Max Rose. Welcome back. Um, Max, I want to start with you because uh, it sounds like um, Ducey's all of a sudden <laughs> being kind of public with this information. Why do you think that is? Well, he's also not being that public, is he? Um, and it begs the question, where have you been? And haven't you felt any sense of... I'm talking to donors about it. It's sort of right. an interesting choice. Right. So he's not coming to the press. He goes to, well, I wonder why the special counsel hasn't contacted me yet. Well, it's a two-way street. You can, of course, reach out to justice if you have any knowledge of a crime. You know, there are so many people that have been implicated in this over the years in the way they have explicitly or implicitly empowered or supported Donald Trump's 
effort to utterly destroy the Constitution and of the United States And by that, you mean all America. those phone calls to various states, the fake yeah, elector scheme, course, things but, like but that. But also one other thing, Vice President Pence admitted already to having called governors during this process. A call from the, president, from the Vice President of the United States is not casual. A call from the Vice President of the United States where he claims to just be checking in on something is not a casual instance. So that in and of itself, I do believe, is him interfering in this Although process as well. I think we well. do have uh, some audio of Mike Pence, right, talking about, uh, talking about this issue. Um, oh, from yesterday. Yeah. Do yeah. you guys want to play kind of his framing of those calls that Max is talking about? I did check in uh, with uh, not only Governor Ducey, but other governors in states that were going through the legal process of reviewing their election results, but uh, there was no pressure involved. Margaret, I was, I was calling to get an update. I passed along that information uh, to the president and uh, it was no more, no less than that. Shelby, uh, Jack Smith is nothing if not thorough. That's what we've learned from the documents case. Um, how much should anyone read into what's going on here? I mean, I think it's pretty serious. And I think, as you said, he's a very legitimate prosecutor. He knows what he's doing. He's very thorough. And if Ducey hasn't been uh, spoken to yet, I do expect eventually he will be spoken to and he will be interviewed, even if, you know, there's no audio tape. So it might be less important in terms of charging you no more. Um, but certainly, I think, given how this investigation is ramping up, he's he's going to be interviewed, if I had to guess. It's a really good point, because Brad Raffensperger's testimony isn't all that important, because we have the audio. I mean, the audio is the most important piece of evidence, but with Governor Ducey, there is no audio. So that entire piece of testimony, that's going to define whatever Jack Smith knows and whatever a, perhaps a jury eventually knows. It's also important to note, I mean, one of the themes here has been delay, right? Ducey said what took so long. I think if we're going to apportion blame for delay within DOJ, more of it needs to fall on Merrick Garland because Merrick Garland took a year and a half plus before he appointed Jack Smith, during which time nobody at DOJ reached out to the top levels of power. Jack Smith's now been in office since November, so I guess we're seven, eight months in, and there's been a notable uptick. And in the meantime, by the way, he's indicted Mar-a-Lago. So I agree, Jack Smith is really doing things by the book and he's moving quite quickly, but this is still a big task ahead. Can I ask, Ellie, you know, and to be clear, Ducey's spokesman put out a statement saying none of this is really new. This is more of a compilation of what we all knew. I think the wrinkle was what you picked up on in terms of Ducey talking to the donors, according to the Washington Post. Where is the former president's biggest legal exposure in this particular case? And does Ducey's comments or what has been reported that he has said change anything in that regard? Yeah, I think the biggest concern, if I'm, if I'm the president's legal team here, is the fake elector scheme, if he can be tied to it, right? Because we know that it was a coordinated effort. But it seems to me that Merrick Garland is very much, as good prosecutors should be, attracted to the clean-cut, black-and-white charges. Mar-a-Lago, right? It's sort of plug-and-play. Here's the statute. Here's the facts. It, it matches. If we're going to get into charges like incitement or attempt to steal an election, you're going to get inherently into gray area, into potentially free speech areas. But if you can show these documents were signed and submitted to the archives, to the Senate, and they were false, that could give prosecutors a cleaner shot. Well, uh, we still see Trump talking on the campaign trail, basically, about his legal problems. That has not stopped him. Sure. Um, what's going on there? 
Well, when Trump believes that when you do things out in the open, you can't be blamed for them and there are no consequences for doing things publicly. Or that it's showing you don't have uh, malicious sure, intent. You, ne you, never, you never forgive. That's his. Never apologize. That's, that's his theory of the case here. And what's interesting is that from the vantage point of the Biden campaign, they need to walk a very fine line. It's a force that the, the judicial process and this law enforcement process will continue, but always bringing the conversation back to economics. I don't think it is any surprise that while all of this continues to go on, Biden is talking about Bidenomics, owning the economy, largest growth of the middle class and the working class that we've seen in recent economic history. You're going to constantly see this push and pull from that from that campaign Plus I think the fear of being on. seen as actually being involved in the case in some yeah, way, no, as right. Trump has this said is, that But there are some people in your party who want them to make more of a focus on this. They're saying, and I understand what you're saying, and I think that's very much when you talk to Biden advisors, or White House advisors, they're saying we cannot have, we can't touch this at all. We can't have any implication that there is involvement here. We talk to some Democrats, they're like, Dude, the guy just got indicted <laughs> for having hundreds of classified documents sure. at the highest classification level sitting in his house, and there's pictures of it. Say something. But you can do both. All right, I, I don't think that there will be one voter who is not very much aware of all of these charges against Donald Trump and the serious national security and moral implications of everything that's going on. On the same hand, though, it will be absolutely deadly to the Biden campaign, the re-election, if people do not think that he puts the economy first and foremost. And I think that's where you're going to see from them each and every day going forward. And that's absolutely correct. You like Bidenomics? It's, it's the, the whole, the it's word, the economy. The I love it. I'm, 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 no, not the policy. I'm I know you like the policy. Branding. Oh, branding. T-shirts. You're going to see me. You like it? Once you guys change the dress code On your TikTok. Here, when the, on my TikTok. When we create the TikTok with your Bidenomics shirt. That's Max Rose, Ellie Honig, and Shelby Talcott. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. All right, happening right now, a manhunt underway, still underway in Baltimore for at least two shooters accused of opening fire on a block party, killing two people, hurting 28. Most of the injured are teenagers, including two 13-year-olds. You can see in this video people sprinting away from the gunfire early yesterday morning in surveillance video just obtained by our affiliate WJZ. Investigators say they don't know if the shooters were targeting anyone specific or if they were just shooting at random. CNN National Correspondent Gloria Pasmino is live in Baltimore this morning. Uh, Gloria, we talked to the mayor last hour, said the investigation was ongoing. What, what's the latest based on what you're hearing on the ground? Well, Phil, uh, we know from police that they are looking for more than one shooter. They believe that at least two people may have been involved in this, but they have not ruled out that perhaps more people are involved. So we know they're looking for several people. Uh, Phil, I thought your interview with the mayor, uh, really striking comments from him regarding gun violence. But first, let me talk about what happened here on Saturday night. Several young people caught in the crossfire. This was supposed to be a celebration for this community, Brooklyn. Day, a celebration for the families and the people that lived here, and it turned deadly. Police say shortly after midnight, shots rang out, sending hundreds of people that had gathered here running for cover. I spoke to some of those people here yesterday. They told me it was absolute chaos and panic. An 18-year-old woman was killed, as well as a 20-year-old man, and 28 people were injured by gunfire. As you mentioned, many of them 
teenagers, some as young as just 13 years old. Now, I want to hear uh, what the mayor had to say just in the last hour, because he made a point about talking about gun violence, not just here in Baltimore or other big cities across the country, but across the entire nation. These black American lives, children's lives matter just as anyone else. We're just asking for all of them to be treated the same. Any mass shooting, any time anyone is murdered with an illegal gun in this country should be treated the same because it should not happen in the country that is the, the leader of the free world. But it does because we as a country still allow uh, the sanctity of American guns to outweigh the sanctity of Americans' lives and particularly Americans' children life and that is something that we have to change so as far as the police investigation phil they are also combing through social media videos and surveillance surveillance video hoping to gather more evidence that may lead them to finding the people that were behind as saturday nights of violence but that investigation is ongoing hopefully we will learn more details later in the day phil all right, Gloria Pesmino on the ground in Baltimore. Please keep us posted when you do. Thanks so much. Also, a CNN exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Zelensky. We'll hear his view on the mercenary revolt within Russia. Plus, the Biden administration debating sending cluster bombs to Ukraine, what they are, and why they're banned in more than 100 countries. We'll have that coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Mr. President, you know, you recently said new this morning. Ukrainian President Zelensky in an exclusive interview with my colleague Aaron Burnett. He responds to the recent revolt among Russia's Wagner Group and says that Putin's power is crumbling. Yes, we see the reaction after certain Wagner steps. We see Putin's reaction. It's weak. Firstly, we see he doesn't control everything. Wagner's moving deep into Russia and taking certain regions shows how easy it is to do. Putin doesn't control the situation in the regions. He doesn't control the security situation. All of us understand that his whole army is in Ukraine. Almost entire army is there. That's why it's so easy for the Wagner troops to march through Russia. Who could have stopped them? We understand that Putin doesn't control the regional policy, and he doesn't control all those people in the regions. So all that vertical of power he used to have just got crumbling down. We're going to turn now to retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Um, Major Lyons, can you talk about your reaction to this? Well, I mean, his message has always been one of unified command. I think he acts as a commander in chief. And I think that message is really for his troops. I don't think it's for anybody else. Uh, we see Russia obviously had a problem uh, with, uh, with the Wagner group. For, for, as it's splintering right now, it's not really taking hold in Belarus. So, again, that message was uh, the president's message to his troops as the counteroffensive keeps going. Uh, Major Lines, the Biden administration has been asked to and is now, I think, taking more active consideration of approving uh, the use or sending over cluster munitions. Explain to people what those are, why the Ukrainians want them, and maybe why there's some reluctance from the U.S. to send them. Sure. Uh Cluster munitions, dual-purpose uh, improved conventional munitions are uh, sub-munitions within artillery rounds. This is an artillery round similar to the exact one that I fired when I was a, a battery commander during Desert Storm. And they provide much better effect with regard to artillery effects. We'll show you a quick video here. This is an air-delivered uh, cluster-type munition where as it falls to the ground, you'll see it 
airburst over the target and then fire much of a wider spread, give much more lethality against anti-personnel and anti-vehicles. It, uh, it is a type of weapon system that, though, unfortunately, has, uh, has some uh, cons to it. It leaves a battlefield that is dirty. There's things that could happen on the battlefield uh, that, that, that soldiers can't necessarily come back over the, uh, over the ground at the same time. But however, for Ukraine's purposes, what it will do is it'll improve their counteroffensive because it'll, it'll allow them to get into digging troops, it'll allow them to get vehicles that are dug in in the defenses that Russia currently has. We just talk about dirty for a second. Dirty means that uh, civilians and soldiers can be injured by the munitions that are left over. That's right, and this is one of the things that if other NATO countries now have actually banned them. They, they've, uh, in 2008, a munitions treaty that the United States is not part of, but other NATO countries have banned them because these munitions, as you see, um, are little, little kind of things that, that children and other people kind of pick up on the ground. They don't always go off. So that's why they're considered dangerous. However, they provide much more lethality than the regular field artillery weapons that we have. I, I want to ask you about another. Uh, Ukraine has long been pushing for long-range missile capability. Um, the UK sent them, I believe, the Storm Shadow mm -hmm. uh, capability, and they've utilized it to some degree. The U.S. has been very wary of sending what are known as attackums. Um, and part of the reason is because of the own, uh, how much the U.S. actually has in terms of uh, the weaponry itself. The Wall Street Journal reported on Friday that they may actually be moving back towards the direction of saying yes to that. I'm told there's some caution on that and we should maintain it. However, why do the Ukrainians want this so badly? Why has the U.S. been so reluctant to give it to them? Yeah, attackums would be a game changer here for um, the Ukrainian uh, military with regard to their capability. The 200 miles of range that they give them, long range attacks uh, that they don't have right now. However, it's a high demand, low density weapon system. So we've seen the chairman of the Joint Chiefs say we just don't have a lot to give away. We don't have a lot of these out in our inventory because of uh, they're just not manufactured. Um, they're fired from this, this HIMARS, the, the platform that they already have there. And if you look at a map, what it would do is it would allow Ukraine to attack into places like Sevastopol and then into Rostov. And what it would do, it would force the Russian command and control and logistics supply lines to go away from the front and have to go back here for their own survivability, giving the Ukraine maneuver forces much better chance in order to succeed as they go on their counteroffensive. All right, Major Lyons, I'd love for you to come over to the table so we can talk a little bit more. Um, we're here with, uh, obviously, Shelby and Max Rose. Um, the Ukrainian President Zelensky said in a news conference on Saturday that he's afraid to lose bipartisan support from the U.S. following, quote, dangerous messages coming from some Republicans. Max, I want to start with you. There's been a long shift towards more sort of uh, familial language about Russia. And we has, there's long been sort of hostility to spending overseas. So is he right to be concerned? He's absolutely right to be concerned, but we've seen this really strange reversal of traditional political positions. Uh, normally, the Democratic Party has been the party that has been more anti-war um, and less interventionist. And Biden's messaging is back to the sort of we support democracies no matter what. Sure. And we support our allies. Um, it's been a very pro-NATO, traditional preservation of the world order message. And the Democratic Party, it's been impressive the degree to which they have remained unified Conversely, the Republican side is in absolute disarray over this issue um, with a very strong isolationist bent, in fact, driven by DeSantis and Donald Trump at this point. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point, because when you talk to 
Biden administration folks in this space. They are less concerned about the House Republicans kind of hemming and hawing or, or uh, shouting about Ukraine aid and far more concerned about the leading presidential candidates driving more Republicans outside of kind of the small group of isolationists um, and creating major problems because they are going to need a new funding package within the next couple of months. How does that resonate on the campaign trail? Yeah, I think it's going to be a really big deal within the Republican Party, partially because there's kind of this war within the party over what America first means. Mm. So there's kind of the traditional version of America first, which I've heard argued as America first doesn't mean America only. And then there is the America first viewpoint where it is quite literally America first. And so it's, I remember reporting, I think it was my second article ever for Semaphore when we launched about how back in October 2022, which was well before Trump actually announced, he was already getting people in his ear from both sides of the aisle trying to convince him either A, to support Ukraine aid or B, to support cutting it off. So clearly this has been brewing for a really long time. Major Mike Lyons, I just have one more question because Ukraine is in the middle of a brutal counteroffensive, right? And so this war is not going to get any easier as they try and make their way towards the sea. So what are we looking at when we talk about sending more vicious weapons into what is turning into one of the largest land wars in Europe in decades? Yeah, I mean, we still haven't sent really the offensive weapons. They've just the weapons they have are really defensive. I am surprised the counteroffensive even started. Frankly, they're doing, trying to do a counteroffensive against what has historically been successful. No blitzkrieg, no air superiority. You know, these kinds of weapons, the the, the, the cluster bombs. And by and that, you mean both Russia and Ukraine correct. do not have air support. Superi- no, the Russians do. No, the Russians do. The Russians have. The Russians have still tremendous advantage on the ground here. Let's let's be sober. But not about that. like helicopters, etc. I mean, yeah. it's still been right. not so, what it could be. No. And and, and so until some of these other weapons come, the ATACMs, likely the, the NATO-based tanks in the next three months, I think crew survivability is really important for the Ukrainians. They have, they have to hold off right now and, and give themselves a chance to make sure that when some or more of those weapon platforms comes, that they'll be able to use them. There's a very big NATO summit coming up in the coming days. I think President Biden will leave on the 9th and 10th. That's a very, very, very notable uh, meeting of leaders in Lithuania. Mike Lyons, Max Rose. Good name drop on Semaphore. Like, I was going to say it no matter what, but like, we plug that <laughs> in. The boss gonna like that. No, we appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. All right. Environmentalists have long pointed to livestock as a major contributor to climate change. Now a new farming technique might flip that on its head and make cows part of the solution. There is ways to produce meat that is not good for the planet. And there's ways to produce meat that's really good for the planet. And that's the nuance that's been missing. Welcome back. Cows and livestock are major contributors to carbon emissions, but now some scientists are saying not so fast and arguing cows, in fact, can actually be part of the solution. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization, livestock farming accounts for more than 14 percent of man-made emissions. Researchers, however, say if farmers change the way their cows graze, it could make a drastic difference. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is here. And Bill, what needs to happen? Well, these guys would say uh, farmers need to get fall back in love with Mother Nature and be closer to her than their fertilizer salesmen. This is basically a style of farming that was common across humanity up until World War II, but it's really about letting nature do the work and taking influence from some very powerful models. In the beginning was the buffalo, 
Tens of millions of them, wandering the land, munching wild grasses, and using poop and hooves to create rich, fertile soil up to 15 feet deep. Look at this. Yeah. But since Americans replaced buffalo with cows, generations of fertilizers and pesticides, tilling and overgrazing, have turned much of that nutrient-rich soil into lifeless dirt. But not on farms, where they graze cows just like wild buffalo. Well, so adaptive multi-paddock grazing, AMP grazing, is a way that mimics the way bison have moved across the Great Plains. And so it's really about the animals hit an area really hard and then they leave it for a long time. Peter Bick is a professor at Arizona State University, and he believes that if enough beef and dairy operations copy this simple hack, cattle could actually become an ally in the fight against climate change. I anticipate we'll get a lot of pushback because people are not thinking that cows can be a part of the solution. Not only are you going against the grain of environmentalists who think yeah. meat is evil yeah. for, for lots of reasons, yeah. you took money from McDonald's for this. Yeah, I asked for money from McDonald's for this. I, I wanted to go to big companies because if they don't change, we don't get there. For his docu-series, Root So Deep, you can see the devil down there. Bick assembled a team of scientists. We're really interested in insects that live in poop. Experts in bugs and birds. Yes, Bob White. Cows, soils, and carbon. They spent years comparing five sets of neighboring farms in the southeast. On one side, traditional grazers who let cows roam one big field for months at a time and often cut fertilized grass for hay. On the other side, amp grazers who never mow or fertilize. You open a gate, they go through, it takes five minutes, Cooper will roll up a wire. And with a single line of electrical fence, move their cows from one patch of high grass to the next. Nuts building fence. This is how easy it is, Tater. While their science is yet to be published and peer-reviewed, Bick says early data has found amp farms pulling down up to four times the carbon while holding 25% more microbes, three times the bird life, and twice as much rain per hour. If it's a thousand acre farm, it's 54 million gallons of water. That's now washing your soil away versus soaking into your land. Wow, look at this grass. But this is also a human experiment to see whether data and respectful discussion can change hearts and minds. This was grazed about 40 days ago, and this hadn't been fertilized in 12 years. Awesome. And when we got out of spending money on fertilizer, it was huge, mm -hmm. huge. And I didn't think it would ever happen. It is such a stress relief. We just don't worry about a lot of it anymore. Mm -hmm. And you don't even fertilize when you plant your rye grain. Nothing. It sounds crazy, but, but just works. letting Mother Nature do the work. Would it be an interesting thing if you didn't have to pay for fertilizer? Would that be wonderful? Curtis Spangler is one of the conventional farmers in Roots So Deep, and he says his mind was changed when he realized he now has a way to double his herd and quit his second off-farm job. Right now, we're having to dump thousands of dollars into nitrogen every year that really, if we just change a couple things, we might be able to save that money to put it toward other uh, 
resources. Is that something you're committed to doing now as oh, a result yeah. of this project? We're, yeah. we're really looking and seeing the benefits of it and how we can work it. So as we hit the height of grilling season, a little food for thought. There is ways to produce meat that is not good for the planet. And there's ways to produce meat that's really good for the planet. And that's the nuance that's been missing. My little boy has a farm puzzle, you know, with the one pig and the one cow and the one chicken in this idyllic scene. And we don't realize that that is so far from what we have now. It's either big farms that are massive or they go out of business. Or we do, but we've embraced mass production, exactly. right? I mean, does this affect kind of our ability to kind of provide the nation agriculturally? They would say it absolutely does. That grass could replace feedlots if, as, a, as a disruptor, a cheaper alternative. But going against the, the, these ideas is a massive big ag industry. Fertilizers, big machinery, all of that, because all of the solutions are natural. Do they have a plan to scale? Well, this is early. This is just like, let's see if we can convince farmers across the fence to talk to each other. And that's what's so heartwarming about this, this series. You've got in two of the pairs actually are two founding members of the country band Alabama. Randy Owen is a traditional really? grazer. Teddy Gentry has yeah. been an amp farmer his whole life and comparing, and they don't talk to each other about it. You know, these are proud folks who work the land and don't really discuss their, but this is really an interesting look at breaking common ground could be a solution for everybody. Healthier cows, land, birds, people, farmers, bottom lines. I love learning about the culture of this. Bill Weir, thank you. My pleasure. All right, the Supreme Court ruling in favor of a Christian web designer who refused to create sites for same-sex weddings. But the man cited in the case says he never actually requested a website. And he's straight, married to a woman. We'll get legal insight on how exactly that could happen. Coming up next. How does this happen? <laughs> And the Supreme Court's ruling to strike down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan isn't just a blow to borrowers. Financial experts say it could have a significant impact on the nation's economy. In a ruling handed down Friday, the justices decided six to three against the president's plan. Now, it would have forgiven up to $20,000 in student loan debt for millions, up to 40 million borrowers. CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon is here. And Rahel, this is actually, I, I'm, I'm stoked you're doing this because there is a macro effect to this decision. It's not just about the politics or individual loans. There is an economic effect. No, is there it? is a macro impact. There is a micro impact to real people. So let's start with macro, the impact to the larger U.S. economy. So the sense is that this will likely not create a significant impact, but it will create an impact. Greg Valliere, he's a strategist who essentially looks at the intersection of Wall Street and Main Street, and he put it at about a $70 billion uh, hit, right, annually to the U.S. economy. He said it is obviously a headwind. Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's, he put it differently. He looked at GDP and said it's about the equivalent of shaving off a quarter of 1%. So uh, not necessarily significant. That said, it, if, it's, if it's your budget, probably feels a bit different, right? Wells Fargo put it this way. Uh, it's a big deal for affected households, not so much less so for broader consumers spending the average student loan payment about 210 to 314, according to Wells Fargo. So uh, the impact to larger consumer spending, perhaps not as significant. But here's what I can tell you people are watching very closely. The timing, the timing of this. So when tens of millions of Americans have to repay these payments, these student loans after three years of not having had to pay them, it will coincide with what appears to be a slowdown in consumer spending that has already taken shape. I mean, remember last week, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America spoke to Poppy, yep. and Bank of America has access to millions of checking accounts, credit card accounts because of their retail business. He said that they are already starting to see in data as recently as June 
that people are starting to pull back. So it is the timing of when we're already starting to see a slowdown, and then suddenly you have tens of millions of Americans who now have another bill on top of that. Will it have an impact? Absolutely. The larger macro, uh, that's still debatable, yeah. but the sense so is that... Isn't that, that it, the goal, right? The Fed has wanted to cool spending. Well, whose goal? Right. <laughs> whose goal? I mean, that is the Fed's goal. Yeah. Absolutely, Audie. Will the administration be crazy about consumer spending and the economy starting to lose steam in November? Not sure. Also, that's right before holiday shopping season. So there's a lot to consider here. Uh, but certainly for all of these people who suddenly have to make these payments again after three years, it's something that you're going to have to account for, yeah. literally. And if you were 21 when this went into place, that means you've never paid student loans. You all of a sudden have to figure out how to do yeah. it. Yeah, there are a lot of people who will now have to pay student loans back for the first time, or they may have a completely different servicer. So there's there's yeah. a lot at stake here. They spent several months expecting that a significant portion of their loans were going to be wiped away. And now... That part. No, not so much. So there's another case we want to talk about because there are questions about the origin of the Supreme Court's ruling that sided with Colorado web designer Lori Smith. So the high court ruling six to three on Friday said that Smith can refuse to serve LGBTQ customers. And the man who Smith says contacted her for her services insists he never did, uh, that the request was cited by her attorneys when the state of Colorado questioned whether she had grounds to sue. And what's more, the man who goes by Stewart says um, that he was not in a same-sex marriage, telling CNN, I have never asked anybody to design a website for me, so it's all very strange. I certainly didn't contact her, and whatever the information in that request is, is fake. Joining us now also is CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig for hell staying with us. So I feel like on the way to a Supreme Court ruling, someone would have fact-checked whether the names and places are who they say they are, et cetera. Tell yeah. us what happened here. One would think uh, that the opposing party would do that, that the state of Colorado would do that. This is why the Supreme Court does not, or, or did not, I should say, until last week, take hypotheticals. Because the facts always matter. Even in the Supreme Court, which is all about the law, legalistic determinations, you have to know what the underlying facts are. And this is a core idea of jurisprudence. We don't take cases unless we have a full factual record before us. What the Supreme Court did here is they found a way around that because they clearly wanted to take this case. They said, well... What we have is this web designer saying, yes, she's going to go into business and not going to make websites, doesn't want to make websites for same-sex couples. And the state of Colorado saying, and we are going to enforce this law, therefore we have a sort of inevitable conflict. But here's the problem. Could end up your facts are wrong, could end up your facts are distorted. But doesn't actually disturb the results of the case in the end. It's not going to cause a change in, in this case because they found this sort of back door to take the case. And it's so important because the Supreme Court is telling us we're going to be much more aggressive. We're going to be reaching down and taking more cases now. Ellie Honig, thank you. Rahel Solomon, thank you for being here. You all right, well, Taylor Swift, the only thing Audie's wanted to talk about all day, mm-hmm. living up to her name, swiftly running off the stage. See what we did there with the writing? It was off the stage at her show in Cincinnati. We'll tell you why. What's coming up next? Dancing. You're a better dancer than me. slow. <laughs> All right, just revealed this morning, Argentine soccer star Lionel Messi will earn between $50 million and $60 million a year when he joins Inter Miami, according to the club's part owner. The lower of those figures would make Messi the highest paid player in Major League Soccer by more than $40 million. 
Some good delta right there. Messi also has the guarantee of being part of the club's ownership once he retires. And I think this is most important, gets a cut from the MLS broadcasting deal with Apple TV. Messi's longtime rival, Cristiano Ronaldo, has a $75 million salary, playing salary, playing for the Saudi Pro League. Now for your morning moment, Taylor Swift reacting swiftly. After, you see what we did there. Yeah, After an apparent yeah. stage malfunction during her era's tour stop in Cincinnati, here is a look. Well, the singer stood in place for a few extra seconds, even stomping her foot to try and activate a trapdoor, finally running off the stage to complete her outfit change. Her fans have dubbed some of these mishaps, including yeah. the time she accidentally swallowed a bug, part of the <laughs> errors tour. Taylor responded to this video on social media, saying, quote, still swift AF boy, which I, I feel totally normal and natural <laughs> reading. Uh, Look, not all heroes wear capes. Are you are you a huge you're a huge Swift? I'm, yeah. She's putting on four hour shows, so I'm there's got to be a that thing was not me here and there. Her. No, I'm not saying I'm just sticking up for the Swifties. Why are you sticking? No one's attacking them. I, I mean, there's who always you, someone. Who, okay, but like not anybody who doesn't want to be. Have you attacked. listened to Reputation? The woman's got enemies. Ellie, but, your thoughts on Taylor Swift's yeah, enemies? Yeah, Ellie. First of all, uh, what does this mean for Trump? Well, first, <laughs> first of all, um, I'm a 1989 guy when it comes to Taylor love Swift. Love it, love it. Um, second of all, let's to be serious. She is fast. Like she has good wheels there. She's I think moving. It's, I think it's leg length, like stride. And she's, I think oh she's wearing gigantic shoes too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So give her credit. She's a Philadelphia Eagles fan, by the way. We need a kick returner. <laughs> I feel like she only uh, did that because she had a She is committed to the show and I appreciate Ellie, it. Ellie, my guy, thank you. Thank you. Audie, do you want to hang out again tomorrow? Yeah, thank you. I'd love to not? come back. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful day. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.